Friends, we now live in a very dangerous world. The unthinkable could happen any day now. When it does, get ready for massive food shortages to happen quickly. That means the smart thing to do is to prepare for the worst now. You need emergency food to get you through whatever happens next. We highly recommend My Patriot Supply, America's largest emergency preparedness company. Act quickly and you'll save $150 off their essential three-month emergency food kit, which contains an abundance of delicious food that provides more than 2,000 calories a day. You get breakfasts, lunches, dinners, drinks, and snacks, three whole months worth per person. This is something every American family will soon need. Your shipment will ship quickly in unmarked boxes for your privacy. Go to preparewiththinkaboutit.com and save $150 on every three-month food kit. But do it now. That's preparewiththinkaboutit.com. Don't be a victim. Survive what's coming and avoid government food lines. Go to preparewiththinkaboutit.com. In Geneva, Switzerland, members of the World Health Organization, which was founded on the principles of establishing a one-world government, will be voting to give themselves worldwide authority when it comes to official international health emergencies. The same World Health Organization who praised Communist China's extreme authoritarian lockdown against the Chinese people, who suggested forcibly separating families to quarantine them. In most parts of the world, <clears throat> due to lockdown, most of the transmission that's actually happening in many countries now is happening in the household, at family level. In some senses, transmission has been taken off the streets and pushed back into family units. Now we need to go and look in families to find those people who may be sick and remove them and isolate them in a, in a safe and dignified manner. And who was caught faking the H1N1 pandemic in 2010. The same World Health Organization run by Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, who's been working with the Clinton Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation since 2007, who said that the lockdowns will never end. I repeat, there will be no return to the old normal for the foreseeable future. And that the war in Ukraine was getting massive attention as a result of bias against black lives. The U.S. government is in full support of this new U.N. treaty with the WHO and has submitted 13 amendments, which will be voted on next week, that will give the WHO international authority on lockdowns, forced quarantines, and forced vaccinations. According to constitutional lawyer Robert Barnes, none of this is legally binding until a treaty is approved by the U.S. Senate. But the law hasn't been stopping these criminals from committing crimes against humanity so far. And if they plan on staying in power, they are going to have to bring back the lockdowns and the ballot harvesting mules. So we know it's coming, and it will soon be climate lockdowns to go with their climate migration. People are waking up, but the UN's agenda is aggressively pressing forward. The United Nations is meeting this week with members of the Mayor's Migration Council, which is comprised of nine mayors from nine different cities throughout the world, including Eric Garcetti of Los Angeles, California. The Mayor's Migration Council is funded by George Soros' Open Society Foundations, 
sponsored by the Rockefeller Foundation and partnered with the United Nations. And their stated goal is pretty clear. They want to grant mayors the ability to bypass state and federal government when it comes to what they call climate migration and go straight to international organizations for resources. They are inviting all interested mayors or senior city staff members to contact them at contact at mayorsmigrationcouncil.org to learn how to engage with the international system and learn how to get funding and boots on the ground support. This all sounds completely illegal, but who's gonna stop them? There is no longer any justice in America. So expect more lockdowns as the food supply diminishes and the population around you surges with hungry foreign migrants. Officials say multimillionaire Jeffrey Epstein has taken his own life. Jeffrey Epstein is dead after being found unresponsive at a New York City jail Saturday morning. After apparently taking his own life. Officials say that his death was an apparent suicide. Surveillance video recorded inside the Metropolitan Correctional Center is missing. A camera situated just outside of Epstein's jail cell is unusable. Footage from at least one camera in the hallway may be too damaged or unusable for investigators. An FBI crime lab is examining two prison cameras that malfunctioned. Surveillance video from outside his jail cell, it's gone missing. Now this will of course raise even more questions about whether the surveillance cameras were purposely tampered with and if Epstein's death was more than just suicide by hanging as it was ruled in an autopsy. The two Bureau of Prison Guards assigned to monitor Jeffrey Epstein the night he killed himself. They've admitted they falsified records and they've now made a deal with federal prosecutors. Their sentence, 100 hours of community service. 9 East 71st Street is an extremely historic address right in the middle of New York City. It's the center of a web of a international operation to blackmail not just U.S. government officials, but also top scientists. It's the home address of Jeffrey Epstein and his seven-story sex dungeon palace. InfoWars has been on Epstein's trail for more than 15 years, and the web that emanates out from this address doesn't just control the United States, but many nations across the world. In this investigation, we're going to be bringing you some of the latest information on what the death of Jeffrey Epstein really signifies and the fact that the networks he controlled are still operating today. Jeffrey Epstein may be dead, but this story isn't. A shocking new report from The New York Times sheds light on the connection between Microsoft founder Bill Gates and the late Jeffrey Epstein. Tonight, there is a real possibility other Epstein associates could face criminal charges. That's right, Tom. There's an ongoing investigation into possible accomplices to Epstein's crimes, and there are still thousands of documents in the civil suit that remain under seal. There is an active effort to make those documents public. Epstein has had several high-profile friendships in the past. President Bill Clinton reportedly rode on Epstein's jet more than two dozen times in the early 2000s. It's no secret that former President Bill Clinton had a friendly relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. Wall Street tycoon Jeffrey Epstein used the Lolita Express to ferry a bevy of beautiful young women. Among the passengers, former President Bill Clinton and Britain's Prince Andrew. FAA records show that Bill Clinton is on the airplane of Jeffrey Epstein 26 times. Newly obtained documents show Clinton actually took at least 26 flights on Epstein's private jet to spots around the globe. Google, Facebook, Twitter, mainstream corporate media, Wikipedia are all 
covering up what's really happening. Every day I get more and more pissed because I'm just like, oh my God, we, it was, um, what, what we had was unreal. Other women backing it up. Hey, yep. Brad Edwards, the attorney, three years ago saying, like, aunt, like, we, there will come a day when we will realize Jeffrey Epstein was the most prolific pedophile this country has ever known. And I had it all three years ago. How many men transporting underage girls came to this keypad and entered the code so that this dungeon door would open? Queen Elizabeth II's son, the Duke of York, or Prince Andrew, was famously caught repeatedly creeping in and out of those doors with young women going in and out. That's how powerful this web of control is. An investigation by this program into the notorious sex abuser Jeffrey Epstein and his alleged partner Ghislaine Maxwell has found multiple claims that the pair targeted, groomed, trafficked and sexually abused at least half a dozen young women in the UK over a 10-year period. For years, the daughter of disgraced media mogul Robert Maxwell lived a rarefied life in the highest echelons of British society. A regular fixture at the most glamorous parties in Mayfair and Knightsbridge, and close to royalty itself. We've poured over thousands of court documents, accounts, books, photographs and videos, and spoken with multiple sources. They reveal that both Maxwell and Epstein regularly visited the UK, where alleged abuse took place. Despite the high-profile scandal, all of this seemingly escaped the attention of the police here at Scotland Yard. Until 2015, when a British child abuse campaigner filed a formal complaint claiming that Epstein and Maxwell had trafficked a woman to the UK for sex. The complaint was based on the court testimony of Virginia Roberts, who was just 17 when she said she was pressured by Epstein to have sex with Prince Andrew in London. In a statement, the Met told us they were not the appropriate authority to investigate and that any investigation would be largely focused on activities and relationships outside the UK. In November 2016, they said, a decision was made not to proceed to a full criminal investigation. And that was the end of it. The Met have explicitly denied that Prince Andrew's involvement with Maxwell and Epstein had any bearing on their decision not to investigate fully. The problem was the fact that once he had been convicted, you stayed with him. I stayed with him, and that's 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 the bit that that that, that um, as it were, I kick myself for on a daily basis because it was not something that was becoming of a member of the royal family, and we try and uphold the um, highest standards of, and practices, and I let the side down. Simple as that. One of Epstein's accusers, Virginia Roberts, yeah. has made allegations against you. She says she met you in 2001. She says she dined with you, danced with you at Tramp Nightclub in London. She went on to have sex with you in a house in Belgravia belonging to Gerlin Maxwell, your friend. Your response? I have no recollection of ever meeting this lady. None whatsoever. You don't remember meeting her? No. And then when you research Jeffrey Epstein's girlfriend and the fact that her father worked for British intelligence and the Mossad and the fact that he was involved compromising members of the British aristocracy, you understand this was a family business 
the entire time. In July 2019, Jeffrey Epstein took his own life in a prison in New York. Ghislaine Maxwell disappeared, but was tracked down and arrested in New Hampshire in July last year. We allege that from at least 1994 through at least 1997, Ms. Maxwell assisted Jeffrey Epstein's abuse of minor girls by helping to recruit, entice, groom, and abuse children under the age of 18. The 59-year-old is facing up to 80 years imprisonment for her alleged role in procuring four underage girls for Jeffrey Epstein to sexually abuse between 1994 and 2004. Ghislaine Maxwell has been denied bail three times now, dubbed a flight risk. She is. Her lawyers have called her confinement conditions horrific due to a lack of drinking water, a sewage stench and an inability to meet privately with lawyers. Jeffrey Epstein's longtime confidant, Jelaine Maxwell, facing two new charges, including, for the first time, sex trafficking. The new indictment also adds a fourth alleged victim, saying Maxwell groomed and paid a 14-year-old girl to engage in sex acts with Epstein from 2001 to 2004. I think when you look at the charges that have been added here, those sex trafficking charges, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, you think about those and you think about the potential penalties if she's convicted. Now, she's pleaded not guilty to all the charges in the past. Some of them are on screen right now. But when you look at the sex trafficking charge in particular, in, in the conspiracy to sex traffic, you look at those charges and you look at the maximum penalties, and it could be effectively a life sentence for her if she's convicted and given the maximum here. So the allegations uh, are very disturbing. This involved allegedly uh, yeah. a 14-year-old girl uh, that uh, apparently on numerous occasions she was paid, quote, hundreds of dollars, according to the superseding indictment, uh, to engage in sex acts with Jeffrey Epstein that originally was supposed to be massages for him, and then it turned into uh, to sex acts and sex abuse on behalf of Jeffrey Epstein. Of course, we've seen that in nearly uh, every other victim before, uh, that she was involved allegedly in grooming uh, this young person, that uh, she appeared uh, nude uh, several times in front of this person, made inappropriate comments, uh, also tried to get her to travel with Jeffrey Epstein, even offering the, uh, the ability to get her a passport, which apparently this alleged victim denied or declined. Um, and also, they paid her to recruit other young girls for these massages that would then, of course, later turn sexual. So a series of uh, disturbing allegations. An affidavit filed in April alleges Epstein and his supposed ex-girlfriend, Ghislaine Maxwell, told a 15-year-old girl to take off all of her clothes and then touched her inappropriately on a massage table at the ranch in 1996. And in a lawsuit filed Tuesday morning, an accuser claims Epstein coerced her to engage in sex acts there between 2007 and 2010. Soon after the well-connected Epstein registered as a sex offender here in New Mexico, state officials informed him that he wasn't required to do so. That's despite having to register in Florida and New York. Official documents from 2010 show that just two days after Epstein registered in New Mexico, a legal loophole allowed him to be taken off the list. The reason? The victim in his Florida case was not younger than 16, a condition for registry in New Mexico. The corrupt system has tried to hide the horrors that have gone on in here. They've tried to block it behind these codes and these big doors. But you and I have blown this thing wide open. Law enforcement sources say several accusers have come forward in New Mexico, where Epstein owns a sprawling ranch. 
According to a new report published in the New York Times, Epstein wanted to use the ranch for controlled breeding, using his DNA to improve humanity. Citing two award-winning scientists and an advisor to large companies and wealthy individuals, the article reports Epstein surrounded himself with leading scientists and would tell them he wanted to have 20 women impregnated at a time on the ranch. Well, tonight we're learning much more about the people Jeffrey Epstein targeted. The director of MIT's media lab, Joichi Ito, announced Saturday that he is stepping down. He's been facing criticism for his financial ties with convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Three top MIT administrators signed off on donations from convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Investigators faulting head lawyer R. Gregory Morgan, fundraising chief Jeffrey Newton, and VP Treasurer Israel Ruiz, saying there were, quote, significant errors in judgment that resulted in serious damage to the MIT community. Then when I started conversations with the MIT Media Lab about the position that I was applying for. It was explained to me that Joey Ito and Jeffrey Epstein had an existing relationship and that part of my job would be to help aid that relationship along. And Epstein's money was purposely marked anonymous. The donations driven by former Media Lab director Joey Ito and mechanical engineering professor Seth Lloyd, who's been placed on leave. We were expected to keep this quiet uh, at every turn, involving as few people as possible. He was referred to by just his initials, sometimes a pseudonym, but in general we were just supposed to avoid other people learning about this. Uh, the visit where he came to the lab, we were expected to keep off books as much as possible. And according to this report, Epstein visited this campus nine times since 2013. He was here for nine times. I mean, there are apparently hundreds, maybe thousands of hours of closed circuit TV footage from Epstein's various properties that are still under seal for some reason. Will we ever find out who exactly was involved in whatever scam he was running and what they did? So the big question is, what's more evil, skull and bones? Bohemian Grove, Jeffrey Epstein's pedophile sex dungeon, or the larger system that controls it. That's where we're going next. There are a lot of historic locations in New York City, a lot of historic buildings. But this building right here doesn't have any names on it. Doesn't tell you who's based here. Doesn't tell you what business they're engaged in. There's a name on the building for who it was named after over a hundred years ago, but that's it. But the decisions that have been made in this building created the modern United Nations we know of today. The Bretton Woods Agreement for world currency and basically every other major governmental system we've seen in the 20th century and now the 21st century. For 100 years, the Council on Foreign Relations has been helping America play a vital part on the world stage. The Council has served as an invaluable resource for its members, policymakers, and the public by publishing bold new ideas, providing research and a forum for debate, and proposing policies. CFR has helped navigate the challenges of a changing world ever since it was born out of the ashes of a global conflict. 
Faced with the new horrors of total war, President Woodrow Wilson tasked 150 of the brightest minds with crafting a path to lasting peace. Known as the Inquiry, this project helps guide his vision for the post-war order. That our people are wedded and devoted to the idea of international justice. Members of the inquiry set sail with President Wilson to work the sidelines of the Versailles Peace Conference. The treaty signed, European powers agree to Wilson's idea of a League of Nations. But in the end, the Senate rejects it. Undeterred, members of the inquiry vow to continue encouraging American participation in world affairs. Back in New York, they form the Council on Foreign Relations. While comprised at the time mostly of white Northeastern men, the Council's mission has endured through a century, even as the organization, the country, and the world all changed. It aspires to be a continuous conference on international questions affecting the United States by bringing together experts on statecraft, finance, industry, education, and science. It lies at the corner of Park Avenue and East 68th Street in New York City, an organization publicly created by British intelligence with the express goal of merging the British Empire with the United States. And it's right here in New York City. It's got an American flag flying right there above it. But this building was established working with a foreign intelligence agency in 1922. This building is the Pratt House. This building is the headquarters of the Council on Foreign Relations. And so this is the, the important thing to, uh, I think, understand that this left-right paradigm is a... Uh, it's a political ploy. It works very well for those who know what they're doing. We find that the Republican Party and the Democrat Party both are pretty much in the, the hands of a, of a relatively small group of people with a membership of about 4,000. It's called the Council on Foreign Relations. These are the people that are really pulling the strings in both the Republican and the Democrat Party. And they've even written about it. There's a fellow by the name of Carol Quigley, who's a former history professor at uh, Georgetown University. And uh, he comes to a very interesting point in one of his books where he says, okay, this is the way the real world is. He said, how is it that we collectivists, we elitists, how can we rule the world when at the same time we want to let the average person think that they're living in a, quote, democracy. They're living in a system where their vote counts. And he answers the question brilliantly. He said, it's very simple. You've got to have two major political parties, and they'll both have the same major goals, the same basic fundamental principles, and they'll argue with each other uh, on, uh, on the surface with slogans and leadership and style and all of that sort of thing. He said, but we will control them both. A special televised meeting of the New York-based Council on Foreign Relations provides a window to the real story. The speaker, Vice President Dick Cheney, takes a question from David Rockefeller. Vice President, uh, I just enjoyed so much your whole speech, but I was particularly pleased that you gave such a strong endorsement for the free trade agreement for all the Americans, subject that has been of great concern to me for many years, and particularly recently, 
and I think it's absolutely essential for the strength of our economy. Rockefeller's role in the drive for an FTAA was a lot more central than he portrays. Rockefeller cultivated Latin American leaders who could be counted on to support such a proposal. Both the 1994 Miami summit and the FTAA proposal were conceived and nurtured by a Rockefeller-created network. Prominent among the organizations sponsoring the Miami event were the Council of the Americas, founder and honorary chairman David Rockefeller, the Americas Society, chairman David Rockefeller, the Forum of the Americas, founder David Rockefeller, the Institute for International Economics, financial backer and board member David Rockefeller, the Trilateral Commission, founder and honorary chairman David Rockefeller, Rockefeller's influence also extends to the current administration. He was Chairman Emeritus of the CFR when Vice President Dick Cheney once served as a director, a relationship that Cheney concealed during his congressional career. It's good to be back at the Council on Foreign Relations. As uh, Pete mentioned, I've been a member for a long time and was actually a director for some period of time. I never mentioned that when I was campaigning for re-election back home in Wyoming. Thank you very much, um, Richard, and I am delighted to be here in these new headquarters. Um, I have been often to, uh, I guess, the mothership in New York City, uh, but it's good to have an outpost of the council right here down the street from the State Department. Uh, we get a lot of advice from the council, so this will mean I won't have as far to go to uh, be told uh, what we should be doing and uh, how uh, we should uh, think about the future. The CFR exists, the Trilateral Commission exists, and it's a, quote, conspiracy of ideas. This is an ideological battle. Some people believe in globalism, others of us believe in national sovereignty. And there is a move on uh, toward a North American Union, just like Early on, there was a, a move on for a European Union, and it eventually ended up. So we had NAFTA and moving toward a NAFTA highway. These are real things. They're, it's not somebody made these up. It's not a conspiracy. They don't talk about it, and they might not admit about it, but there's been money spent on it. Uh, there was legislation passed in the Texas legislature unanimously to put a hold on it. They're, they're planning on millions of acres taken by eminent domain for an international highway from Mexico to Canada, which is going to make the immigration problem that much worse. So it's, it's not so much a, a secretive conspiracy, it's a contest between ideologies, whether we believe in our institutions here, our national sovereignty, our constitution, or are we going to further move in the direction of international government, more UN. You know, this country goes to war under UN resolutions. I don't like big government in Washington. So I don't like this trend toward international government. We have a WTO that wants to control our drug industry, our nutritional products. So I'm against all that, but it's not so much as a sinister conspiracy. It's just knowledge is out there. If we look for it, you'll realize that our national sovereignty is under threat. And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. So they said they had. They were walking out to press conference. Said, "No, nah, I said I'm not going to. We're not going to give you the billion dollars." They said, "You have no authority. You're not the president." The president said, "I said call him." <laughs> I said, I'm telling you, you're not getting a billion dollars. I said, you're not getting a billion. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was, what, six hours? I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> Got fired. 
The Royal Institute of International Affairs is the main roundtable group that in the early 1920s created its first major offshoot, the Council on Foreign Relations. And it also set up similar chapters in India, in different nations in Africa, Latin America, Asia, the Middle East, all across Europe. This is the predecessor of the Bilderberg Group, of the Davos Group, and all of these other major global organizations that are pushing the Great Reset. And they go in per country and recruit thousands of the best and brightest in academia, banking, science, the military, and get them on board with their global operation. And as long as you agree with them, as long as you go along with their plan to transfer national power to unelected multinational corporations and governments, you will be pushed upwards through the ranks. The Council on Foreign Relations is an unbiased, unvarnished view of policy. And what we want to do is start a conversation in this country about the need for Americans to be better prepared for the world they're about to enter. The Council is a place where people can try to get to some common understanding. Foreign policy can be so daunting, it can be so scary for people, and yet CFR makes it very accessible. You want to hear from intelligence people, you want to hear from policy people, you want to hear from NGOs. You read the headlines, you read the newspapers, but then you're trying to go deeper. One of my go-to resources, of course, is foreign affairs. The council work is so grounded in facts and what's happening in the world without an agenda. We're not political, we're not ideological. We don't take institutional positions here. We don't take money from governments. This policy-relevant space that's both intellectually solid but still applied, still connected to reality, that's the sweet spot we try to operate in. And that is how we've gotten our world government. So I asked the question that I first asked at the beginning of this investigative report. Who is most powerful? Is it the Bilderberg Group? Is it the CFR? Is it the Trilateral Commission, the IMF, the World Bank, the UN, Microsoft, IBM? I'm going to answer that question here in just a few minutes. As the council's prestige and numbers grow, it needs a bigger home. And the late council member Harold Pratt's Park Avenue mansion becomes its iconic headquarters. With the nuclear arms race underway, CFR invites a young Harvard scholar to oversee a study group on deterrence. The council publishes Henry Kissinger's resulting book, which becomes an unexpected bestseller and launches one of the most influential diplomatic careers of the century. I think its task will be to develop an overall strategy for America in this period when really a new world order can be created. It's a great opportunity. Under Chairman David Rockefeller, the council opens a small office in Washington, D.C. Long overdue, women are invited to join. The council adds a new term member program for younger professionals. Military fellowships provide rising officers an opportunity to think more broadly about national security. Plus, international affairs fellowships are created to build a bridge between academia and government and create scholar practitioners. It is a superb program, and it was indeed one of the best, best experiences of my life. World War II was generation-defining. It was the deadliest conflict in human history ushered in the age of nuclear weapons, and brought about a world no longer dominated by European powers. In the wake of its destruction, governments met to try to form a new world order. They created institutions that became household names to the generations that followed, the United Nations, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank. 
The United Nations, founded in 1946, purportedly to stop world war by unifying all the nations under a central, powerful world government. And it was the Rockefeller family and their foundation that donated the land here in New York City to build this facility, this, this obelisk to world government. So right here in New York, we have Jeffrey Epstein's pedophile compound. We have the Pratt House and the Council on Foreign Relations. And we have the United Nations right here. But which one's more powerful? Which one is more corrupt? Which one is more evil? And the answer is all of them. They were all created by a blueprint developed by Cecil Rhodes 130 years ago to establish a corporate world government and take over every country, to take over every major corporation, and to unify them behind an end game goal of a planetary world government that would then carry out a medical dictatorship and depopulation. If you think depopulation is a new thing, Plato, 2,300 years ago, said they should depopulate the earth. And you move forward thousands of years to Sir Thomas Malthus saying he wanted to depopulate what is the UK today. So this idea has been promoted for thousands of years and the United Nations has all these great excuses and all these great reasons it exists. But at the end of the day, it was set up by the Rockefellers and by the globalists to establish a corporate world government. And how does this corporate world government control people? It controls them through blackmail. The death of the financier raises yet more questions about accusations of sex trafficking involving dozens of underaged girls, which allegedly took place in his various estates from 2002 to 2005. In court filings, Gouffre says she became an underage teen sex slave for Epstein, who was later directed by Maxwell and Epstein to have sex with many, quote, powerful men, including numerous prominent American politicians, powerful business executives, foreign presidents, and other world leaders. Among those Gouffre names in sworn depositions, British royalty Prince Andrew, former governor and U.N. ambassador Bill Richardson, and the influential former senator from Maine, George Mitchell. There are a number of co-conspirators that allowed these things to occur, uh, active co-conspirators as well as passive, that watched what he was doing and said nothing over the years. There are three categories of people that I think it's important we talk about. It's the abusers, the enablers, and then the friends of Jeffrey Epstein. And the friends fall into a category where you had Jeffrey Epstein, this man masquerading as a money manager in New York City, a wealthy guy who had so many people on his side. These friends of Jeffrey Epstein are the people who were on his island, who were in his house at dinner. Those same people were having conversations with women who we now know were sexually trafficked by Epstein and sexually abused. Those friends, including Les Wexner, are the people who need to come forward and speak up. Some theorists are arguing the world's most powerful people may have been involved in his alleged prostitution circle. No relationship, not on nothing. You report these two men met at least six times. What does Gates say about that? Well, I believe that there were more, and he, and he and his spokespeople would not say how many in total they actually met. But this included visits to the mansion, uh, seeing each other in Seattle, flying on Epstein's plane, when we all know Bill Gates has his own $40 million plane. Um, and then, as an investigative reporter, the, 
why would Gates say, oh, I had no relationship with him, when, of course, he knows what the, the facts are? So that's, that always sets off red flags for me. One of Epstein's attorneys asking the judge for more than a year to prepare the case, saying it would take that long to review a million discovery documents, including emails, texts, and phone records obtained in the investigation. I mean, there are apparently hundreds, maybe thousands of hours of closed circuit TV footage from Epstein's various properties that are still under seal for some reason. Will we ever find out who exactly was involved in whatever scam he was running and what they did? The blackmail ring of Jeffrey Epstein is just one of many across the United States and the world that go out and compromise leading scientists and academics with underage girls so that they will go along with this agenda. Because some people can't just be bought off with money. They've got to be set up. They've got to have their weaknesses used against them. So this is a project of the British Empire. This is a project of Cecil Rhodes. This is a project of the Council on Foreign Relations. And everything that comes out of that, the Bilderberg Group, the Club of Rome, Davos, the UN, all promote the exact same agenda. This year's World Economic Forum has moved online. It's time to look at the big picture and work collectively. That's the message from day one of Business Bonanza, the Davos Agenda. More than 11,000 scientist signatories from around the world, clearly and unequivocally, that our planet Earth is facing a climate emergency. Climate change is more severe than predicted, and it's accelerating faster than uh, scientists were expecting. We collected two sets of data over the last 40 years, things like population growth, fertility rate, the meat consumption. And then in parallel, we also looked at atmospheric CO2, nitrous oxide, methane, ice melting. The data is looking much worse than expected. So what we have in this paper is a call to action. Reducing carbon dioxide emissions dramatically, stopping deforestation and planting a lot of trees, reducing meat. And finally, we talk about curbing the population explosion. For example, educating girls and young women about family planning options. over here and check out the United Nations and then finally answer that question once and for all. Which is the most evil organization of all? Who is really in control of all these other tentacles and heads of the Hydra? As you enter the United Nations building here in New York, prepare to go through all the security, right there on the building it says sustainable development goals. You see that rainbow circle symbol? That's a sun symbol or an ancient swastika symbol. And that's what Klaus Schwab, Bill Gates, and all of them wear. And their goals are basically the end of humanity as we know it. The end of poverty because most people are going to be dead. 
behind closed doors on this New York campus, a secret gathering of some of the world's most powerful people. Gates, Buffett, Bloomberg, Winfrey. It was like, well, it was like the Super Friends. Together with others at the meeting, including George Soros, Ted Turner, David Rockefeller, they're worth more than $125 billion. That much money, that much power around one table. It begs the question, what were they doing? What were they scheming? Total world domination? This group, together for six hours, was talking about charity, education, emergency relief, global health, the new Superman and Wonder Woman, the super rich friends, not fighting bad guys, but fighting for good nonetheless. Apparently, one of the things they discussed was what each of them knows about what really works and what doesn't work, so they can concentrate their resources. So we will see definitely a lot of anger uh, already now, but probably increased by the end of the year. So um, we have to prepare for a more angry world, and I see the need for action. I see the need for a great reset. It's important to understand that the UN has a lot of good people working for it just like every institution does. But it was founded by very, very evil globalists who want to get man to give over our nature that is inclined to love God and to allow a scientific system to take control of our trajectory, to give up our will to them so that these engineers can play God. So I think it's fitting that we have sirens going off in the background because this is an emergency. Here we have the United Nations promoting to us their world system. Will food become a streaming service? Will nature, so a prelude to the weather modification that's been going on for more than 70 years that they're now declassifying. What should the world's diet be? So the United Nations is telling you we're going to tell you what your diet is, and they tell you, you will eat bugs, you will drink sewage, you will have nothing, you will own nothing, and you will like it. Imagine a world where the richer you are, the less you own. A world where a fancy car, a large house, and expensive clothes cease to be a status symbol and become a burden. How would life look like? With no belongings, no commodities, no wallet, no assets or property. A world where the only things you can buy are services and experiences. The phrase, you will own nothing and you will be happy. My question is, if I don't own anything, then who does? Who controls the resources? Well, it seems like the most obvious answer is the very people who practically own everything now, i.e. members of the World Economic Forum. No conspiracy, just factual and well-stated intentions. Is it possible? to own nothing but have everything? The problem is with this video is it's the exact mood of like a dystopian thing that you'd be sort of forced to sit and watch with matchsticks holding your eyes open in a great big terrifying cinema.
the idea that we will own nothing and we will be happy sounds like a terrifying, not Orwellian, but sort of Huxleyan idea that we will be somered into compliance, drugged by a sort of a magical substance in our water, into dumb compliance with the objectives of the powerful while we live as kind of human drones. Gradually, by selective breeding, the congenital differences between rulers and ruled will increase until they become almost different species. A revolt of the plebs would become as unthinkable as an organized insurrection of sheep against the practice of eating mutton. Bertrand Russell H.G. Wells, Aldous Huxley, Bertrand Russell, and hundreds of other eugenicists constantly bragged about how the establishment believed themselves to be a separate, more advanced species than the common man. Top eugenicists were bold enough to admit that their real goal was not improving the heredity of the commoner, but to further dumb them down so that they could be more manageable. Nobel Prize winner Russell wrote at length about how vaccinations filled with mercury and other brain-damaging compounds would induce partial chemical lobotomies and develop a servile zombie population. Diet, injections, and injunctions will combine from a very early age to produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs that the authorities consider desirable, and any serious criticism of the powers that be will become psychologically impossible. Bertrand Russell. As a technology product designer, I've started to notice this shift from physical products to digital services. I believe that as objects become smarter, infused with bits of intelligence and technology, they will transform into services, swapped, shared, used, in the same social way we swap digital media. Aujourd'hui, au bout de ça, on parle de puces qu'on pourra s'implanter. Ce sera quand ça? Certainement dans les dix années à venir. Et d'abord, on va les implanter dans nos vêtements, uh -huh. c'est-à-dire wearables, comme on le dit. Et après, on pourrait s'imaginer qu'on les implante dans nos cerveaux ou dans nos topos. Et à la fin, peut-être il y a une communication directe entre notre cerveau et le monde digital. Ce que nous voyons, c'est une sorte de fusion du monde physique digital and biologic. That is the official policy of the UN and their spokesperson, Klaus Schwab, who formerly headed up a major United Nations department. So what should the world's diet be? Will sustainability create equality? Oh, they want to make us all equal, equally enslaved. Will machine learning regrow ancient forests, you see, they're going to play God. They're going to take control of your cells, your body. This is their religion of transhumanism. Should we patent nature? Well, Bill Gates is already doing it. Is farming political? Why is Bill Gates the biggest landowner in the United States? Why are they buying up the food? Why are they telling us we're soon going to be eating bugs? Two billion people around the world supplement their diet with insects. Now a new report says creepy crawlies could help avoid a potential global food crisis. Communes instead of cities? Big plastic camps that we all live in where computers tell us how we live? That's going to be fair, but who programs the computers? That is the program, the plan, the operation being pushed by these transhumanists who've set themselves up as the priest class, as the gods, and we must bow down to them and give up our humanity as sacrifices to them 
and then they will dole out the advanced technology like Moses from the mountain down to us mere mortals. We are now still fighting uh, survivors, but we can be rather optimistic after what we have seen with the announcement of vaccines. Now we have to think how to structure, how to design the post-corona era. And here, of course, the word reset comes to my mind, because one thing is clear, we cannot come back to the old normal. We have to use this opportunity, as our uh, parents and grandparents have done after the World War II, to really reflect on what went wrong and what could we do better. There's only one more thing the UN loves more than pedophilia, sex slavery, and human trafficking, and that's genocide. They've executed and ran genocides in Africa, in Asia, and in Latin America. It's their job with UN peacekeepers to go in and kill whole villages that won't turn their property over. It's their job to carry out the forced inoculations. They ran the Rwandan massacre in the early 1990s, working with the Clintons. The United Nations is the greatest criminal organization the planet has ever seen, and it fits like hand in glove with the communist Chinese, North Koreans, and other authoritarians across the world. The United Nations was a criminal organization founded by eugenicist globalists for the express goal of a tyrannical, oppressive world government to carry out forced depopulation. The United Nations is the enemy of every man, woman, and child and every sovereign state. The United Nations is the sword of death. We all know, but still pay insufficient attention to the frightening scenario of a comprehensive cyber attack, which would bring to a complete halt to the power supply, transportation, hospital services, our society as a whole. The COVID-19 crisis would be seen in this respect as a small disturbance in comparison. The economy is not going to be anything like uh, it was. It's going to take a long time to recover. It's going to be, you know, people are going to be surprised at how slow and how how fitful this is. Is this going to take a long time to recover? It's going to be, you know, people are going to be surprised at how slow and how how fitful this is. An epidemic, either naturally caused or intentionally caused, is the most likely thing to cause, say, 10 million excess deaths. Today, the greatest risk of global catastrophe doesn't look like this. Instead, it looks like this. If anything kills over 10 million people in the next few decades, it's most likely to be a highly infectious virus rather than a war. What else are we not listening to that we need to take action on now? Well, the... The idea of a, a bioterrorist attack is kind of the nightmare scenario because they're a pathogen with a high death rate would be picked. Now, the good news is, okay. I'm not trying to depress you, it's tough enough Too late. right now, Too that late. most of the work we're going to do to be ready for pandemic two, I, I call this pandemic one, most of the work we'll do to be ready for that are also the things we need to do uh, to minimize the threat of, of bioterrorism. Has anyone ever told you that God loves you? and that he has a wonderful plan for your life. I have a real quick question, but an important one to ask. If you were to die this very second, do you know for sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you would go to heaven? Let me quickly share with you what the Holy Bible reads. 
that reads, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible also reads, For whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And you're a whosoever, right? Of course, we all are. If you'd like to receive the gift that God has for you today, say this prayer with your heart and lips out loud. Dear Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sin. Wash me and cleanse me. Set me free. Jesus, thank you that you died for me. I believe that you are risen from the dead and that you're coming back again for me. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Give me a passion for the lost, a hunger for the things of God, and a holy boldness to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm saved. I'm born again. I'm forgiven, and I'm on my way to heaven because I have Jesus. I have Yeshua in my heart. If you pray this prayer, and you mean it with all sincerity, you will be saved. There is no other hope for this world. We know that the beast system is on the way, but I still encourage you to pray. Pray that God will have mercy on America and on the rest of the world, because the things the globalists have planned will be horrendous. And if you die without Jesus Christ, you will be lost for an eternity. Don't let that happen to you.